Hello, this is the Black and Asian Therapist Network podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's interested in the internal psychological world from a Black and Asian perspective. Barton Network is where UK Black and Asian therapists share their passion and their expertise. My name is Eugene Ellis. I'm a psychotherapist and founder of Barton. The reason why I'm doing these podcasts is because I don't think that there's enough of a conversation or discourse in the general public around the psychological life of black and Asian people in the UK. So this podcast is about addressing that and talking very specifically around black and Asian experiences. This is the first of these podcasts and over the next few months, I will be presenting UK black and Asian therapists sharing their thinking and psychological concepts so as to support all therapists and mental health workers in their work with their black and Asian clients. To kick this off, I'm going to present recordings of eight therapists who have given talks at Barton conferences over the years. I'll be presenting one speaker at a time and podcasts will come out once a fortnight. The podcasts will take a slightly different format after this, but I'll let you know more about that when we get there. It's been a pleasure going through these recordings and listening to them again, and really noting what these speakers have had to say. There is so much richness in these talks, and I think you're going to want to listen to them over and over to get behind what they're trying to say. The speaker for this podcast is Farad Dalal. He spoke at the 2010 Barton Men's Conference. Farad Dalal is a psychotherapist, supervisor and group analyst in private practice in Totnes and Exeter. He has published widely on forming an understanding of some of the causes of hatred of others in general and racism in particular. And his recent publication, Thought Paralysis, The Virtues of Discrimination, continues that understanding. In his talk, Farad critiques the diversity movement, which sounds strange when you think that diversity has been taken up so wholeheartedly in organisational life and been a force for change, but he argues that the diversity movement, whilst beneficial in many ways, has also structured within it a kind of silence, or what he calls thought paralysis, which keeps the power structures of racism functioning. Farad has really dug deep to shed light on and deconstruct the paradigms of multiculturalism, psychoanalysis, referring to knowledge as a solution, anti-racism, the Race Relations Act, tolerance and offence, and racism and culturalism. He argues that even though we're not supposed to discriminate, that discrimination is necessary to life, and to stop discrimination is to stop thought. Hence, a kind of thought paralysis pervades the diversity movement, and this thought paralysis breeds silence in organisational life. He then encourages us to make the distinction between discrimination and unfair discrimination. This is all good mind food, where Farad really cuts through these ideas with clarity and precision, and expanded my ways of thinking about the diversity movement in a way that does not agree wholeheartedly with it, nor does it negate it. This is Farad Dalal. Okay, good morning. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Uh, It's a bit of a homecoming for me because I lived and worked in Hackney for over 20 years, first as a school teacher, then as a therapist. 
until I moved to Devon. So um, just amazing just to be back in familiar streets again. Okay, this is a, a talk which um, comes out of a book that is uh, with the publishers just now, which is uh, a critique of the diversity movement, which might seem a bit strange given, um, you know, uh, it's fated as, as, a, as a good thing. But I've got lots of uh, issues with it, uh, which I'll sort of talk about. And just, just to say where I'm coming from, I first trained as an individual therapist in humanistic psychotherapy, and then I trained as a group analyst, and uh, then I started to do a PhD, in which um, I wanted to do something I thought was pretty straightforward, use psychoanalysis to uh, understand racism. And as I started to do that work, I found the psychoanalytic theories that I'd been trained in really very problematic and um, uh, for lots of reasons. And so I turned to group analysis because I thought that's a more social theory for, for you know, so that, that would uh, help. But in fact, that too um, had lots of difficulties. So I ended up doing one book. This sounds a bit grandiose, but it wasn't. Uh, but I ended up doing one book, really trying to build a theory that I could use, which was the, and then, then the second book on race, in which I sort of develop it more fully to try and make a psychosocial understanding of racism and so on. Okay, so, and so since then, you know, I've been, I've been sort of writing and thinking about it for 20 years or so, and in one way of thinking, I'm a bit bored with it. You know, I want to move on. But it's actually very hard to move on because people say, you come and talk to us about this or talk to us about that. And I end up in this place again. Um, And so I ended up giving, you know, over the years, many talks. And I thought, I can just chuck them together into a book. But, of course, it it wasn't that simple. Just as It's a kind of a ghettoizing process that happens, you know. So I was asked to speak to this uh, conference called Opus, uh, three, four weeks ago, and I wanted to speak on the subject of responsibility, which is something I've been thinking about. But, um, you know, I got uh, encouraged to talk about race and racism. So there's a kind of a ghettoizing process that's also in play. So in terms of um, where we are, the, over the last you know, decades, lots of time and money and uh, energy commitment has been put into addressing the structures of inequality. But if you look at recent statistics, the pay gap between men and women has actually widened. Um, There was an article in uh, The uh, Guardian where in the last five years, 71% more people black and Asians have been stopped and searched by the police than in the previous five years. So on the one hand, all these efforts are going in. On the other hand, it seems like the situation uh, is sort of getting a bit worse. And I should say, given that my talk's a critique of diversity, I, I don't hold a position that there isn't a problem. I think, sincerely think there's a big problem, but I have a problem, I have a problem with some of the solutions that are put up for it, for that problem, and the way it is conceived. Okay, so perhaps um, the, the sort of best, most well-known uh, way of thinking about racism is to do with uh, ignorance. It's, it is said that uh, we fear what's unfamiliar. So the more familiar we become with these strangers, the less likely we are to um, feel hateful and frightened of them. Broadly, that's a multiculturalist position. 
And what psychoanalysis adds to this picture is the picture of projection. It says this empty space, we project all our difficulties into them, and so then we come to experience them as difficult. Into that way of thinking, if the problem is a psychological one, right, if racism is caused by the problem in the psyches of white people, if you like, then the solution is to go and work with the psyches of white people. Um, and then once they sort of have sorted out the negative projections, they wouldn't project so much on, on them and there'd be less racism. That's okay. So in both these uh, theories, multiculturalism and psychoanalysis, it seems to me they both believe in the idea of knowledge as a solution. So the, uh, the multiculturalists think that if you learn about them and their ways then uh, this difficulty will reduce. And the psychoanalysts think if you learn about yourself and your psyche, the problem is reduced. But both of them think not knowledge is um, there. Now, I think there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot in both paradigms. But, but both of them um, have the severe limitations. For example, um, the, uh, take the issue of women... Women aren't strangers to the men of that society. They have intimate lives together, yet they are oppressed everywhere. So, and they're marginalised from the workplace and so forth. So whatever the reasons that they're marginalised, it isn't to do with ignorance, right? It's not that they're from this exotic culture that we don't understand. That's just, that's just one, bit of, one little bit. Psycho, the psychoanalytic picture also, I think, has something to it. But I think it only uh, explains things at the level of individuals. You know? So I could say, okay, this person here, I can see why, because of their developmental history, the crap going on in their heads, why they are hating black, say, All right? in that particular person's story. But what the psychoanalytic model doesn't do, it doesn't take up how is it that the, the projective mechanisms of the whole societies get synchronized and pointed in the same direction. You know, why choose black people here and Jews there, and why not nurses and so forth? So there's, there's uh, I'm just touching on uh, critiques here. And, and the usual answer given to that challenge is well, we use the projective mechanisms for groups that are already socially sanctioned as deserving projections. Okay, I think that's right, but it misses out two questions. One, how do those groups come to be socially sanctioned in the first place? Right? That's racism, so it ignores that. And secondly, who is the we I just spoke about when I say we project? Who is the we? And, and, and the, another big issue with both paradigms for me, multiculturalism and the psychoanalytic, is that they're both apolitical. They don't engage with power relations. So in the 80s, in Britain, arose anti-racism, and that was its first, that was its big critique on multiculturalism. It says, the problem is not ignorance, it's power relations. And they had the famous formula about racism equals power plus prejudice. Yep. And the anti-racist movement did, in fact, it was militant, and it did, in fact, make for many changes in society but it was not very popular. And, and one of the things it's done, for example, is that normal uh, racist language is, is no longer acceptable in polite company, right? But um, it doesn't mean it's disappeared. 
So encouraged by these small victories, by the uh, feminists and anti-racists and so on, other marginalised groups who felt they weren't being spoken for by these two movements also wanted to uh, speak up for themselves. And this is where the diversity movement comes in. The diversity movement says it speaks for all differences, right? And that's fine. But even whilst the diversity movement takes a step forward, it takes another step backwards, which I think is very problematic. It declares itself apolitical. The diversity literature, a lot of it, is about appreciating differences. It says, let's not see differences as problems, but as assets to be celebrated. And this has become so much the norm everywhere in organisational life that the only question that remains is how do we celebrate it? And, and I think it is because of this, this is, and the corporate world, the multinationals have really embraced the diversity movement. They employ diversity experts. They spend tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of pounds on diversity, implementing diversity programmes. Why? Why did they do that when before um, anti-racism, multiculturalism and so forth, was they didn't uh, invite them in? And the reason for it is this. The, say, the anti-racist movement is essentially about redistribution of wealth, right? That there's only so much in the pot and uh, we need to spread, spread it around. So the people who, have, who are in the boardroom, if you like, won't welcome this because it will mean, essentially, in the arithmetic, they will get less. But diversity theology says something else. Diversity theology says if you practice diversity, which means make inclusivity and so forth, the cake itself will get bigger. And so everybody will get more, including the ones who already have more. And I think it's through this route, because if you think about it, the people who, um, who are going to employ the diversity consultants, the people in the boardroom, the ones who write the checks, essentially they, they are doing it out of a form of self-interest. And uh, uh, if you look at the literature, it talks about diversity in, in a particular kind of language. It talks about it being lucrative, a commodity, an asset in the services of increasing profit. So the way the diversity program is sold to the boardroom is on the belief of you will do well, you'll make more dosh, but the way it is sold to the public is that this is in order to do good. Right? So it's a deceit, in my view. Um, but then there's another problem, which is this, this rhetoric of inclusivity actually comes to become an instrument of fear and control. And what is said now is, in some places, you must, you, whatever's going on, you must accept and uh, respect the other and their ways. Because if you don't respect them and their ways, you are being oppressive. In a lot of um, organisations, this is the sort of people are frightened to speak, right? And you, and people go through a performance of um, respecting the other and so on. But how do we end up here, given that all these paradigms, you know, uh, multiculturalism, anti-racism, and so forth, all of them have their genesis in liberalism, right? Which is and liberalism is liberalism is about the promotion of dignity and freedom. So uh, a quick scoot through what liberalism is and, and uh, two themes in particular. So to start with, 
So um, the, the, the Enlightenment. And uh, the Enlightenment is often slagged off uh, because people say it's uh, Eurocentric. Well, okay, it is... It is the, the fact it is centric uh, doesn't invalidate it, is one thing. And anything that's said by anybody is some kind of centric, right? So, uh, so that's one thing. The other thing is that the principles of the Enlightenment are about uh, equality. And so the Enlightenment says it, bl- it deliberately blinds itself to all differences. You know, it has the universal individual, and it's saying it's doing that in order to say there's no difference between the king and the commoner. They are both equal in the eyes of the law, and they're both to be treated equally. So in that way, what the Enlightenment is about is, if you like, about the universality of, of human beings, right? And uh, the Enlightenment also promoted, uh, encouraged people to think for themselves. Uh, you know, work things out for yourselves. Don't just take in um, the proclamations of the authorities. So the Enlightenment focuses on uh, uh, individuals uh, blind to difference and the mind. And then uh, uh, a few years later, along comes its count, it's the, the counter to that, the Romantic period. And the Romantics that came along, they said, this emphasis on the mind is wrong. We should turn instead to the heart. And uh, you turn inwards into the heart. And uh, each heart, if you like, each individual has their own unique essence. And uh, it is the, uh, the duty of each person to live out their own uniqueness. Okay? So you can see now that the, um, the romantics then, in a way, become the champions of difference. Right? Because they're speaking for... And the, just at the level of individuals, they're saying speaking for difference. So here you've got these two sets of values from the Enlightenment, universality, sameness, and from the romantics, difference. And um, liberalism comes to embody both. This tension, which seems the opposite, it embodies both of them. Because it says, in the private sphere, you be different, you be yourself. But in the public sphere, each of these beings are equal to each other. So they're different in themselves, but equal, different but equal, as the adage goes. And, uh, And the other thing is, both of them, focus on, the, the, they were talking about the individual. Then uh, in the 19th century, uh, the later romantics brought about a shift. Uh, I should just say one other thing, that the way they conceived of the individual, uh, both of them, was that the individual has the freedom in their private sphere, which is their homes and their minds, to do what they will with their property, okay? Ownership, property. So what I own is mine, and you can say nothing about it. My thoughts, my beliefs, and so forth are mine. You know, that kind of a thing. There are problems there, but uh, won't sort of go into it now. But anyway, that was the picture. Then the later romantics came along, and they took this picture of individuals, and they put it onto something called cultural groups. Now, cultural groups are said to have a life of their own. Cultural groups are said to have rights over the things that belong to them, 
like their ways of believing, their practices, uh, and so forth. And the same injunction applies to cultural groups as well. They must live out their essence, right? Whatever their essence are, they have to live it out to be living an authentic life. So what you end up with is a picture of these cultures that are sort of encapsulated uh, and separated from each other. And now some interesting, having done this move, which is one of the moves one can question most, how valid is it to take this picture and stick it from individuals onto groups? Uh, Anyway, having done this, one of the difficulties is this, that cultures have their... uh, Cultural practices, right? Whatever they might be. Ways of speaking, dressing, eating, blah, blah, blah. Now, they're private. They're owned by the culture. But, although they're private, these practices take place in public spaces. right? The way I dress, how I speak, and it affects others. So, there's a problem between public and the private. Although it's private, it's affecting others. And when the practices of one group uh, affect the pra- and, uh, and offend another group, uh, we say that um, uh, the, the issue becomes one, one of rights. And multiculturalism says that each culture has equal rights to express itself as no one culture is intrinsically better than, the, than another, something I agree with. But a key problem with us accepting and respecting their ways is that neither we nor they are homogeneities, if you see what I mean, right? So, so earlier when you're talking about the black experience, there is no the black experience or the gay experience. There are, there's a range, because there's a range of experiences. You know, some black people are crack addicts and some are bankers and some are uh, Nobel Prize winners. So... To talk about the black experience, I think, is to utilise the ideology of racism and just invert it. So, Britishness, the we of Britishness, British National Party, Cameron Brown, Christian fundamentalists, radical atheists, they all speak for British culture. Similarly, the untouchable has a very different experience of Hinduism than the Brahmin. Women everywhere seeking to step out of their uh, allocated uh, subservient roles are beaten down because it is said they are going against our way of doing things. So there's a pro- the, just the issue about the we and the them is, is already a kind of a problem because I'm saying the we is already constituted by diversity, right? There is no... There, is, there can be no... Um, uh, spokesman for the black community. There can be no such thing. There are black communities of different kinds, with different aspirations, different values, different beliefs, and to lump them all the same is a version of saying they are all the same, or saying, oh yes, we are all the same. So there are, there are sort of four points I want to um, draw. This thing about social social groupings are not so much... Um, found, they are made. That's one thing. And uh, cultural practices are never innocent. Amongst other things, cultural practices are systems of domination and oppression. 
it is saying why the Brahmin has certain rights and the untouchable does not have those rights. And it is institutionalized as cultural practices and beliefs. Cultural practices uh, draw a line between the us and the them. You know, we eat pork, you don't. That kind of a way. But also it's used to police those within the culture so that they stay. We don't do that sort of thing. Right? That kind of an idea. So I cannot just respect them. I can only respect some of them because they are different. Right? There's the, the, the values, different sets of values and beliefs. And if I accept and respect some of them, I'm bound to offend others of them. So this is my predicament. So I can't take this place of benevolent neutrality, which is what liberalism seeks to foster. Okay, I'm going to come at the problem from, an, from another direction. Human beings are social beings. Social beings. That means we're born into communities, and, uh, and as we grow up in these communities, we take in certain ways of believing, thinking, uh, feeling, experiencing, and so forth. And so, uh, if you like, I am, am constructed uh, to some degree by the environments I'm uh, born into. This becomes my taken for granted. So you could say, in, in, in a, one way of thinking, we are cultural sheep, right? We, we follow what the conventions are, and we do it mindlessly, you know? I don't really think about it. On the, on the other hand, human beings are also thinking beings. We, we, we're not just cultural sheep. We actually are able to question our conditions of existence. But the capacity to think is a process of discrimination. Think about it. Thinking is a discriminatory process. Words arranged, organized. I, I speak in this way, show it in this way, as opposed to another way. There are lots of ways. So thinking itself is a process of discrimination. But my discriminatory faculties are not value-free, right? The way what I think is right and wrong, good and bad and so on, is not an objective thing, purely. I think certain things are good and bad, right and wrong, because of the conventions I have grown up in and what I take to be good and bad. So you can see that this sort of paradox. On the one hand, I'm a thinking being. On the other hand, my capacities to think are compromised by the conventions I am born into. And it is this difficulty or paradox that leads to the collapse into relativism. Relativism is where anything and everything goes, and it's all equal. Uh, we're just different but equal. And I must accept the ways of the other, even if I don't agree with them. But think about it. How can I do that without causing an injury to myself? One of the things cultural systems are that I grow up in, we all grow up in, is our deep sense of right and wrong. What makes me an ethical being, right? What I think, gen truly, deeply think right and wrong. Now, if somebody over there is doing something which goes counter to that, the only way I can accept them, and that way, is by suppressing my own ethical self. So again, it's another problem. And, uh, and if I do that, remove my ethical self or suppress it, I think I'm, I'm abandoning what makes me a human being. 
this is this is the um, predicament that um, when it comes to the exercise of my faculties of discernment, when I'm making decisions and so on, these capacities are intrinsically biased. I am biased. Our minds are partisan. That is um, the human predicament. And if you like, all the strategies of the equality movements are about addressing that. And the way institutions have come to counter that, the individual's capacity to be biased, is by trying to remove individuals from decision-making processes and instead make procedures, right? And that's the sort of norm in uh, organisational life. The problem is not discrimination, but unfair discrimination, because discrimination is necessary to life. But I think uh, this distinction is not kept in mind, and a collapse takes place. Neil Thompson, in a book that's gone through many editions, his definition of discrimination is unfair or unequal treatment of individuals or groups. Of course, we don't want unfair treatment, so the only way to stop unfair treatment is to stop discrimination. One stops discrimination, one stops thought itself. And uh, I think many uh, procedures, uh, grievance procedures, complaints procedures, selection processes and so on, incorporate this kind of slippage. And so they end up being draconian and silencing in their effects. And so in organisational life, what happens now, the responsibility of individuals is no longer to think and to do good, but to follow procedure precisely, document it, in order to demonstrate you have followed procedure precisely. That is what much of organisation life is about now. What, what happens to these ideas when actually people try and put them into practice? The, the first thing is the Race Relations Acts do not uh, define race. The I, notion of race itself is an artefact of the problem we call racism. Racism creates races. And yet... If you keep using the word race, I think you're doing something, keeping something about racism going. But nevertheless, race gets into the legislature. Uh, This is how the Race Relations Act, it says, um, it begins by saying, it is unlawful for a person to discriminate against another on racial grounds. Okay, next sentence, when somebody discriminates, it is called racial discrimination. Definition of racial grounds in the, in the law is on the basis of one of these five categories, race, colour, nationality, ethnic or national origins. And there you see it in the definition of racial grounds has been smuggled in this notion of race. They use it very cleverly. It comes in. They have not defined it, but they have given it now a legitimacy. It exists. And uh, the legislature doesn't define race, and it leaves it up to the courts to establish who is or isn't a race. The first sort of case was a Sikh family in 1970 or 80 or something, I can't remember now. They filed a case of race discrimination, but they have to establish that they are a race. And uh, the law courts, they say, no, you're not a race. Uh, and the, uh, they go to appeal, they say, no, you're not a race. They go to the law lords, and the law lords eventually say, Actually, on the basis of the category ethnic, what does ethnic mean? This is how the law lords define it. 
having a long shared distinctive history, that's their definition of ethnicity. And on that basis, the Sikhs were the first race that could enter the legislature here. But the confusion of categories. The Sikhs, a religious group, are considered to be a racial group because of their ethnicity. And through similar cases, uh, Jews, Romani Gypsies, Irish travellers, Afro-Caribbeans are races. But when the Rastafarians tried to join this elite squad, on the same, on the same grounds as uh, the Mandalas, which is this guy did not want to cut his hair, uh, then the law lord, and, and he actually won, they agreed, but then the law lords overturned it because they said the Rastafarians did not fall within the meaning of racial group for their shared history is only of some 60 years duration compared with that of gypsies, whose history is of 700 years duration. So if you live long enough, you'll become a race. Um, Okay, Uh, here's something now I'm going to have another argument with. Uh, You you uh, put up some statistics earlier about, um, you know, the numbers of people, blacks and so forth, in in our profession. I think it is uh, good to collect statistics, and in, in that kind of a way, I think it's actually very useful because it shows what's happening. You know, whatever people say is happening, you count numbers, you can see what's happening. So I agree with that. But the way it is collected, which is through, this, uh, through the ethnic monitoring form, I think is problematic. Yeah, and this, this form will be um, familiar to all of you. Yep. So you're supposed to um, fill in one of these. And the confusion of categories, you know, colours, geographies, and... The, this I couldn't, I cannot, I get in sense mixed ethnicities because it suggests it plays into the hands of the racists. It says that there are such things as pure ethnicities. Where ever has there been a pure ethnicity? So it is playing into um, the hands of the racists. Similarly, for mixed race and mix, you know all the different versions of mix that we use, I think are similarly uh, problematic. Given that this is legislation from the Race Relations Act, why is it not race monitoring? Why is it ethnic monitoring? So there's a little fudge that happens. This is advice given uh, by a government body to people collecting this data. They say ethnicity is subjective. A person should self-assign his or her ethnic group. And what other people may view... Uh, as their ethnic identity, if there's a difference, it is the person's view that should take priority. So what I think myself to be does have a validity, but that's beside the point when it comes to racism. I might be an Oxford graduate, I might be a doctor, I might be uh, this or that or the other, but if I'm seen and experienced and treated first and last as a patty or as a blackie, then my self-ascription is beside the point. It is racism works on other ascription. You know, you black people in this room. I see black people in this room. Uh, so you, you might decide that you're one of these other categories. But the point is, it is the other ascription. So I think if you're really going to do this job, I think these forms have to be filled out through racist and racialized eyes because that is how racism operates. On that form, I could genuinely enter myself into each one of those. I could genuinely enter myself into A to E. People are put through trainings, right? Uh, Equality and diversity trainings. And one of the things it does is it shows you uh, how you ought to 
use language. And a good part of it is that, you know, it's saying certain sorts of abusive language is not uh, allowed in the workplace. And I think that's fine. But then um, there's, there's another uh, version of this, which is, which is the idea that language structures experience. Right? The kind of language I use, the kind of experiences I have is in part to do with the sorts of languages I use. Uh, what happens is this. Because, um, if you like, I use language to make distinctions uh, and then one part of the distinction is oppressed or marginalised, the suggestion is that we should therefore not use those categories. So in the same book by Thompson, which is called Anti-Racist Practice in Social Work, he says things like, we shouldn't use terms like the elderly, the old, because it makes an us-them differentiation and it depersonalizes and dehumanizes them. So that's one bit. So if we don't name them, if we don't give them a name, then they don't exist, then we can't marginalize them. That's one uh, idea. But then when it comes to other categories, like black, for example, right, who are also marginalized and oppressed and so on, now we're told the opposite. Now we're told, not that don't use the category, now we're told respect this category, celebrate it, emphasize it. How come, given both the elderly and the black, as it were, are both marginalized, oppressed groups within society? Why is it one rule for one and another for another? And I think it's because the assumption is that the black group is a real group, you know, it has a real existence, whereas the elderly is just a group that comes out of the way we use language. And, and when it comes to things like black, then it's the, the, the diversity ideology comes up, which is we ought to emphasize the differences between individuals and across groups because differences are assets to be valued. Same could be said of old people. So um, there are other issues, I think, with the diversity movement per se. And so I want to sort of come now to uh, talking more, more directly about uh, tolerance and offence. I think quite rightly, most of the um, work has been done on when it is they, the notional they, and I know I am in that they, um, when they are the offended party in some way, right? But what happens uh, when it is me, I want to think about when I am the offended party, with something that is going on around me. Now, so I'm offended by something. So my first problem is I cannot trust my response. Is the response I have of offence, is it a racist response in me? Is it a racist response? Or is it born of something more ethical? So I can't trust my own response. If it is something more ethical, then I have another problem. Do I express it, which is to go across a liberal taboo, you know, to voice my thing and so cause offence to the other, or shall I subjugate it, right? This thing that offends me. So notice I am deciding, I am deciding what to tolerate and what not to tolerate. I'm deciding. In other words, discrimination is not the opposite of tolerance. It's not the opposite. The exercise of tolerance requires your discriminatory processes. But the, the decision as to what I will or will not tolerate is not fully ethical. I'm much more likely to tolerate the behaviour of a large, frightening man than of somebody who I'm not so intimidated by. 
If discrimination is integral to the activity of tolerance, what, what is tolerance? What is tolerance? Well, tolerance is the activity of continuing to put up with a state of discomfort in me. Right? Something's happening which I find uncomfortable. So to tolerate that means I am actually tolerating something in me. If I can readily accept what's happening, then I don't need tolerance. Tolerance is unnecessary. Tolerance is, occurs in a place of difficulty. So um, what do I do now? I have two sets of values that are intention. One is to be true to myself, and the other is to respect the other. How do I, how do I manage it? And both these are encapsulated in the simple phrase, live and let live, right? Live and let live. I want to live and I want to let you live. But what does that actually mean in practice? What does it mean to live and let live? Well, the imperialists and the fundamentalists, they don't feel the tension between my duty to myself and my duty to you because they do away with the duty to you, to the other, right? So they don't uh, live on the principle of uh, live and let live. They live on the principle of my way or no way. Meanwhile, the, uh, the diversity uh, enthusiasts, they collapse the tension by in- ignoring the injunction to be true to myself. And so they uh, practice a form of, I defer to your way and I celebrate it. Okay? So the imperialist wipes out that tension and the uh, diversity person wipes out their own ethical selves, if you like. And uh, finally, a certain kind of liberal does manage this principle of live and let live, but only by the device of having very little to do with them. Hampstead is a long way away from Hackney, metaphorically speaking. If you live in these different worlds, then I can indeed live my life and I can easily let you live your life because we don't come across each other. That principle is live and leave well alone. So given that my response, right, the response I have to something I cannot trust because it might be racist. You know, the, the very first time a black person knocked on my door in order to join one of my therapy groups, a black person, my first thought was, oh, shit, was, oh, shit, will he fit into my group? Will he be, you know, that kind of... So that response I had, it's a racist response, all right? So anyway, I'm just saying, I cannot trust my response, however much I study and whatever and whatever. So what do I do? How can I test it, my response? Well, it has to be tested. Now, this idea of testing takes place in the territory between denigration, their shit, dismissing them, or deification, they're wonderful, I accept them, come what may. Something in between these two territories. And uh, to that activity of testing, where I don't simply accept them, nor do I simply dismiss them, I engage Somehow I engage. And although that word engagement sounds banal, ordinary, true engagement, I think, is terrifying. Because true engagement is, I let some of your views into me. And if I truly let your views into me, then I might be changed. I might become a stranger to myself. Now, that is a terrifying prospect, actually. And hopefully the process is more mutual, yes? That, that it is through this. So although, although uh, terrifying, this is where the hope lies.
But this, this kind of exchange really is an exchange of ideological fluids, if you like. Right? It is a deep and profound exchange. Now, this picture, although terrifying, is still a bit benign. And the reason it is benign is that the protagonists that are doing this engaging are not equal. One is more powerful and the other is less powerful. This is taking place in a power relational field. If you like, that is why uh, a way of thinking about why more black people don't come into therapy. Because it is taking, therapy is taking place in a power relational field. And, and also, this struggle for engagement, it is the case that it is the, uh, the marginalised who are more likely, what's the word, to militate for engagement. Whereas the established, the ones at the centre, would prefer, it suits them not to notice. Right? So there's, there's this kind of profound asymmetry. And the ones in the centre are likely to, to um, literally, it's a whitewash. Things, these things aren't happening. If these things aren't happening, then there's no problem to be addressed. So um, heading towards my conclusions, I think many of the attempts at uh, grappling with these issues from the uh, equality movements have actually made things worse rather than better. For example, the lethal mix of the use of race in the legislation uh, with the presence of the notion of mixed in the ethnic monitoring form and the way that funding is dispersed to the disadvantaged all push people into further differentiating themselves. In this situation, it becomes imperative to be known and recognised in the legislature by a particular name. You have to become a kind of people and this is because once a category is officially recognised, whatever it might be, trance or whatever, then not only does it gain legitimacy in discourse, but it is now deemed to have certain rights in relation to other kinds of people. You are only counted, there's a way of putting it, you are only counted and you only count when you are of a certain kind of human being. Oversimplifying, I can say that there are two kinds of problems one is racism and one is culturalism. Racism is uh, where the, uh, the privileged benefit from the structures and mechanisms of society. Racism is where some kinds of people get centrifuged to the edges and the ones at the centre benefit from it, yeah? by the structures thing. Culturalism, on the other hand, is a problem, if you like, of certain spokes persons within the so-called ethnic minorities. Because the more powerful and privileged among the so-called ethnic minorities hijack the problem of racism and put it in the service of culturalism. And they do this to bolster their positions of privilege within their communities. So if I challenge the imam or whatever, I will be told that I, I would have no rights to speak into this territory because this is their way. But their use of culture is to bolster and legitimate and retain the power relations within those cultures. And the liberal becomes silent because they are afraid that if they challenge, then in the challenge they will be accused of being racist or in fact some of the racism will reveal itself. But I think these are two different problems. And I think the, the culturalists do a disservice to the problem of racism. Thanks.
That was Farad Dalal giving his talk on the diversity movement at the 2010 Barton Men's Conference. To find out more about Barton, please visit us at our website, www.baatn.org.uk. It will be great to hear from you about these podcasts and to get your views and feedback. You can email me at eugene at baatn.org.uk or you can leave your thoughts on the Barton podcast page. I hope you can join me for the next podcast when I'll be presenting a recorded talk from Elaine Arnold, founder of the Separation Reunion Forum, an organisation which raises awareness of the effects of broken attachments, separation and loss through immigration to the UK. Until then, goodbye.